Jonah chapter 1. saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he cried, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then tidings reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry mightily to God. Yea, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger so that we perish not. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and repentest of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, I beseech thee, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm which attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a sultry east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And this evening we come to the remarkable little book of Jonah the fifth book of the Minor Prophets. It's remarkable in many ways. All it contains of prophetic discourse is one solitary sentence. It may interest you to know that in chapter 3 and in verse 4, you have the only uh, sentence of technically speaking, a prophetic discourse in the whole book. Yet, forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all you've got. Uh, as far as prophetic ministry goes, of the word, you have just a few words that uh, express the ministry of Jonah. That is remarkable. No other book quite as remarkable uh, as that. And yet, this little book is as prophetic in nature as the whole book of Isaiah. <coughs> uh, again, one's got to emphasize and underline the fact, as we have said in our, some of the other li prophets' lives, so in Jonah's, that the whole experience of Jonah is in itself prophetic. We shall look at that in a few moments again. But that is, of course, why this book, which contains hardly any prophetic ministry as such, has been included amongst the prophets, and indeed why it has uh, been made so much of. It's always been regarded highly, this little book of Jonah. Again, it seemingly contains no actual, specifically worded message as such for God's people. In this, again, it is remarkable. Uh, even the little book of Obadiah, uh, which I pointed out to you, is directed almost completely toward uh, Edom. Yet, it has within it uh, a wonderful message for God's people. Edom might end in destruction. Esau, the end of Esau, is going to be destruction. But the end of Jacob, though twisted and crooked, by the grace of God, because he, he will be found in Zion, will, will be a transformation and a possessing of his possessions. Well, that's a message for God's people. But Jonah has no such message for God's people, outwardly, 
on the surface, there is no specifically worded message for God's people. In this, it is absolutely unique in prophetic literature. Every other prophetic book has a message for God's own, but this book seemingly, apparently, has not. It becomes even more uh, clear that the Holy Spirit wishes to emphasize something of very great importance uh, in this book when we read 2 Kings and chapter 14, if you'd like to turn to that. 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25 to verse 27. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hepha. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. There, we discover that Jonah had, in fact, a very real ministry amongst God's people. Except for that short paragraph and its reference to the ministry of Jonah uh, amongst God's people in Israel, we have no record anywhere uh, of what that ministry was. We haven't really even a sample, unless we take this little word here, that when he predicted something, he encouraged Jeroboam to re recover lost territory. And those predictions uh, were fulfilled in the life of Jeroboam II. But you see, what I'm getting at is this. It is quite clear from this reference in 2 Kings that Jonah had, in fact, a big ministry. That he, he had, in fact, succeeded Elisha. He was in the succession of Elijah, Elisha, and now it was Jonah. That little uh, aside, almost, gives us a, a clue to the fact that Jonah occupied a very influential position spiritually uh, in the life of God's people in the northern kingdom. But we have no record of his ministry. And we would have therefore expected that if we have a book which represents the ministry and the life of the prophet Jonah, it would obviously speak of his ministry amongst God's people. But instead, it is entirely different. So it is all the more clear that um, the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize something of, I was going to say, unique importance uh, in this book of, of Jonah. Indeed, Jonah is in actual fact presented to us here as the first apostle to the Gentiles. Um, it's a ra rather remarkable fact that he is in Scripture the first sent one to the uh, to the Gentiles, albeit perhaps a, a rebellious one. Uh, nevertheless, he was one who was sent 
uh, uh, as um, an apostle to, to, to the Gentiles. The, in, this, in this remarkable fact, which I think we shall see more and more of as we investigate and explore this little book, we see at, what, at the one and the same time uh, a focusing of attention upon Israel's vocation in regard to the nations, the position that God wanted his people to hold and occupy in relationship to all the unsaved nations round about her. That's one thing we see. Uh, but at the same time, in this little book of Jonah, we have a, an amazing looking forward in spirit to the day when the Gentiles would be brought into the family of God as fellow heirs uh, with the people of God. Now, of course, to us, all this is simple. It doesn't seem to contain very much that's alarming or even amazing. But of course, you, if you just try and translate yourself back into those days, when the Jewish people believed that they were the people of God, that they, as it were, um, their nation was the container of the oracles of God, that they had been favored above all, above all the other nations of the earth, God had in a particular way predestinated to be above all the other nations of the earth in their relationship to the living God. If you only understand a little bit of the uh, sense in every child of God under that covenant, their sense of uncleanness, contact with a Gentile, their very food laws, their very, um, the very strictness of the law of God, drove an effective wedge between them and uh, the unsaved nations round about them. They couldn't really even sit at the same table and eat. Uh, the only way they could do that would be by a Gentile obeying the laws of God. Then they could receive him into uh, their fellowship, as it were, and would be able to eat with him and treat him almost as a member of the family. But otherwise... Unless they disobeyed and compromised, there could be no effective intercourse uh, with, the, with the world. Now for Jonah to, to be sent with a message like this that he at least understood, uh, with the possibility uh, of Gentiles coming into, uh, into an experience of the living God, That, in that day, was something revolutionary. It shouldn't have been revolutionary, for in fact it, it had been from the beginning the conception of God for Israel, that, that Israel should be a kind of first fruits, that Israel should be a kind of vantage point for God in the earth by which the knowledge of God could be spread abroad through the nations, that Israel should become the means by which the Messiah should be brought in with the one object of bringing men and women of every nation and tongue and kindred and clime into the family of God. 
But you see, it is a mark of how far God's people uh, had receded into ignorance. That they, whilst they would not say it, they looked upon Jehovah as the Jewish God. The God who was reserved for the Jews. The God who indeed did not even want to branch out from the Jews. He didn't want to have anything to do with anyone else but uh, the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham was, as it were, the boundary of their uh, vision and of their horizon. Now, if you begin to understand that, you, you begin to understand two things. The revolutionary impact of this little book, and secondly, the unbelievable anguish of heart through which poor Jonah went. Somehow or other, the ignorance in Jonah had got to be uh, extinguished. Somehow or other, the very spirit that he was unaware of, that was exemplified everywhere amongst God's people at that time, which was in him, had got to be overcome, utterly overcome, so that God could make Jonah a kind of lesson uh, to, to, to us all. It is a remarkable thing that of all the prophets, Jonah has one little word which aptly describes both his function and his ministry. He is called by the Lord Jesus twice, a sign. He was a sign. That is everything about, everything about Jonah, about himself, his character, his experiences, the Lord's relationship to him and his relationship to the Lord, the Lord's dealings with him, his attitude to Nineveh and to the people outside of God's covenant. All this is a sign. Something from which we can learn and learn and learn more um, of God's mind uh, and character. I wonder if I've, if I've made myself clear enough. You see, at one and the same time, in this little book, you have the most remarkable thing. You have, on this one side, uh, a definition not by word, not by word, but in the experience of Jonah, through the experience of Jonah, you have a definition, in fact, of Israel's vocation in the mind of God. What was the position she ought to have occupied? What was the meaning of her ministry amongst the unsaved. Can I make it clearer? And on the other hand, it was the first wonderful, clear uh, breaking forth of a new note in prophecy. If you look upon, upon this board, you will see that Jonah is the first prophet that speaks about Gentiles. Of course, you see, most of us have studied Isaiah now. We've studied Jeremiah and studied Ezekiel. So we all think, oh, surely they all knew about this. No, they didn't. All that was to come. Jonah was the first one. The impact of Jonah was revolutionary. 
Jonah was the first one to talk about a possibility of Gentiles being linked to the living God. The possibility of people without the covenant having dealings with God. Of course, we have examples of it elsewhere in Scripture, in Job, for instance, and elsewhere in Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, and others, of course, we've got this. But you see, things had advanced in Jonah's time. Things had become con con crystallized. They'd become, they were, can I put it this way? It may help you. They were set theological conceptions. Things had come down to a pattern. And here you've got God's people, and God's people are God's people. And God's people are the horizon of God. Uh, they are the uh, boundaries almost of God. He won't go beyond them. The rest, oh, they're, they're, they're predestinated to hell. They're predestinated to hell. But we, we, we are the seed of Abraham. We are the covenant people of God. Oh, isn't it wonderful that we should be the covenant people of God? But of course, if you're an Egyptian, too bad. If you're an Assyrian, well, it's too bad. Uh, you better just get on and worship your idols. But we know where you're going to end for your wickedness. But uh, we, we have a future. We have the people of God. So this was the thing that Jonah was unconsciously part of. Jonah had imbibed the very spirit of this, although if it was put as I put it, he wouldn't agree with it. But he had unwittingly, uh, somehow imbibe the character of this thing. And now we are ready to see a little bit more of, of this book. You see, this little book was a cry. It was a protest against exclusivism or particularism. The kind of thing that reserves God exclusively for itself, as if God is a commodity who can be confined within the glass spider of the small, finite minds of men, either one man or a company of men. It was a, a great protest against this kind of exclusivism or particularism, that is, that God was, was particular in the sense that he was particularly for God's he couldn't care for the millions outside of the covenant. It was a protest against those hard and fast set theological conceptions which give rise to the most narrow prejudices. This little book is a protest against that icy aloofness or that indifferent in ap in apathy toward the unsaved, which in every case always finally produces harsh attitudes. When people are indifferent to the multitude round about them, they can talk harshly about them. They can talk harshly and coldly 
and unsympathetically uh, about them. Now, this little book is a, is a protest against all that. It embodies the reaction of God against his own people. And mark you, God doesn't judge his own people here. He doesn't deal harshly with his own people here. It's as if God, to show them what compassion is, gives them an experience of compassion and abundance. He allows them to experience his compassion. To me, it's a marvel that Jonah, who fled from the presence of the Lord and was thrown over into the sea and was swallowed by this sea monster uh, that God had prepared and appointed, uh, it, it's a marvel to me that when he prayed to the Lord inside the creature, and the Lord heard and answered, and he was vomited out onto dry ground, having been shown the mercy of the Lord and the love of the Lord, he still, when he got to Nineveh, this, the root of this thing was still in him. In spite of the fact that he'd been shown such pity and such love and such grace and forbearance on the part of God, he still could not find it within him to allow the Lord to be compassionate to Nineveh. Of course, there's nothing to do with, with poor Jonah. <laughs> See, he might, he, he, he and himself didn't mean anything. His attitude, but it, it was an argument and a contention with the Lord, he thought. He could not bear the fact that the Lord was so compassionate. That was his contention. And it all comes out in the last chapter. Of course, the little, this book is a, is a miracle. Of, of, of literary effect. The way in that last little chapter four, everything comes out into the open. What God really wants comes out into the open. What Jonah's really like comes out into the open. When at last that terrible little disclosure is made, I knew when I was in my own land that you would do this. And then the most amazing thing that only usually belongs to praise and to psalms and thanksgiving. I know that you are a God slow to anger, of great pity, abundant in mercy, and so on. What an amazing disclosure it is. The argument of Jonah with the Lord. He seems to have a blind spot. The Lord has shown such grace to him. The Lord has really expressed such love to him, but he does, he cannot find it within his heart to allow the Lord to be like this to Nineveh. That's the point. And in the end, it is the little good that grows up for which Jonah in his utter misery, as so often with all of us, suddenly develops a kind of interest and a kind of uh, fascination as so often when we are in this kind of thing, we do, don't we? Some little bird, some little creature often takes our fancy and fascinates us. It somehow lifts us out of ourselves. And he watched this plant grow, and it was so thick, and then, of course, it went. And he was angry because, it, because a worm had eaten it. He was angry with the worm. Uh, he was most annoyed. And the Lord said, Do you doing well to be uh, like this, uh, Jonah? You see, in spite of the fact that in, in spite of the fact that Jonah has experienced himself the grace of God and has seen the grace of God 
in his ministry to God's people, illustrated in God's forbearance patience. Remember, he was living in days of terrible profligacy, of vice, of corruption. Do you remember those days? Amos lived a little later in them. Hosea lived in them. Well, Jonah was living there, and he had seen the forbearing love of God with his own. But now he said to Nineveh, he says but a few words, and the whole of Nineveh comes down onto its knees in repentance and contrition. And he can't find it in his heart, somehow or other, to allow the Lord to show such compassion. Isn't that an amazing fact? Now, what does it illustrate? It illustrates what hard and fast theological conceptions can do. They confine the Lord into such a space that he can't breathe. Indeed, if the Lord does anything against it, you'll have an argument with him. You'll be very angry. The Lord can't do that. He just can't do that. <laughs> Why, my whole life I've believed that. And look, the Lord's doing so and so and so and so and so. He can't do it. This is the kind of thing, see, that this little book is a very great reaction against it. It is a protest. And of course, it is always so that every time this kind of thing, this kind of spirit begins to develop in God's people, God always reacts against it. All through the history of God's people, the Lord's been doing this kind of thing. When everything has become set, when people have got their little conceptions all worked out and clear, <coughs> when somehow or other they've got the Lord, if I may so use a term, taped, they've got their ideas of the Bible all clear, they've become masters of the Bible, and, if I may say so, masters of God. They've got everything at their fingertips. Then suddenly... This is the kind of thing that so often happens. God reacts against it. He protests against it in uh, this way. I hope you understand that. It's more than probable that Hosea understood the significance of uh, Jonah's experience when he speaks in Hosea 6 and chapter 2. Um, this is very interesting because it shows the influence that Jonah had on some of the prophets. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2, Hosea says, After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before, before him. It's quite clear that uh, Hosea had understood the sign of Jonah. He had understood something of the experience of Jonah, what it uh, prefigured, what it illustrated. You see, Jonah was more than just... Um, uh, <coughs> exemplifying a principle that can be applied in every age and generation. It can be applied tonight to us in Richmond. But he was also uh, a prefiguring of the exile. When the Jewish people would go into death for disobedience, they had not discharged their responsibility. But there would come a point when they would be revived. They would be, as it were, vomited up, out again. And a remnant would go back into the land. And that remnant would discharge its responsibility. So we can go on and go on. 
Jeremiah, in chapter 51, I think it is, again speaks of the same thing. Of a, of a, he speaks of Babylon being like a sea monster that swallows up Judah, but which will, after a certain time, spew it out again. So you can see that um, the other prophets had understood something of the significance of the experience uh, of Jonah. Jonah, as I've said, was a son. He was meant to symbolize this coming trial of both Israel and Judah, uh, both in their dispersion and in their restoration. On a greater level, he was a prefiguring or a sign of the Lord <coughs> Jesus himself. You remember what the Lord Jesus said when they all came to him seeking for a sign? He said, no sign shall be given to you but other than the, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Um, the Lord's death, his burial, and his resurrection was prefigured in the um, three days that Jonah spent in the deep, in the depths. This is again and again um, remarked upon. You see, if you look at Matthew 12, Matthew 12 and verse 39, <clears throat> you find that the Lord Jesus attached very great significance to the experience of the prophet Jonah. He said, But no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will arise uh, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Lord Jesus attached very great significance to the experience of the prophet Jonah. It's a very interesting thing, by the way, that um, Jonah was a prophet from Galilee. He came from this little town, little village of Gathifa, which is a few miles north of Nazareth. And it's a very interesting thing that when the Pharisees and the doctors of the law said, has any good thing come out of Galilee? They were in fact wrong. Because Jonah, one of the greatest prophets, had come out of Galilee. It shows you, doesn't it, the blind prejudice, that, where, where it can lead us when we're blindly prejudiced. How was Jonah, how was Jonah a sign of the Lord Jesus? How did he prefigure the Lord Jesus? Because it was his his um, sinful disobedience that led him into this experience. Well, he prefigured the Lord Jesus in this way. What does the book of Jonah represent? What does it set forth? It sets forth this, that God, through dealing with us, through purging us, through doing something in us, would give us a ministry, as he gave to Jonah, to the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus is the greatest fulfillment of, of, of that thought, that conception. In his death and in his resurrection and then a salvation for all the world. Not Jew only, but Jew and Gentile. To be proclaimed everywhere. In that way, the Lord Jesus put very great significance upon Jonah. For Jonah truly prefigured the Lord Jesus in this. <coughs> the style of this book is one of clear simplicity and it's one of movement. <clears throat> Each part of the story is told in such a way 
as to clearly reveal its message. I don't think there's any book that's quite so interesting as the little book of Jonah. Uh, it's only 48 verses in all, and yet the whole thing is filled with a growing um, movement until it reaches its climax. And one of the most remarkable features in this little book is the way that when it reaches its climax, it suddenly and abruptly ends. There's not another thing. When it's got you to the point that you're meant to get to, it doesn't ruin it by a lot of fussy words. It just leaves it absolutely clear uh, with us. Uh, one, I suppose one of its most delightful aspects, the insights that it affords into human nature, both with Jonah uh, and with the, the sailors. Some very lovely insights in this book. When, when Jonah was asleep and snoring, he was in a deep sleep. The thought is one who was so deeply asleep that he was snoring. Um, the captain heard and went down, you know, and you've got a little... Um, a little bit of repartee, and then farther on you've got the sailors, when they want to get, when, when they said to Jonah, when they cast lots and found out it was Jonah, um, Jonah said, you better throw me overboard. Only my death will calm down this, this storm, otherwise you're all going to lose your lives. There's a very lovely little insight into those men. It says they rode very hard to save Jonah, but the harder they rode, uh, the worse the storm became, so finally they threw him overboard. But before they did so, they got on their knees, evidently, and asked the Lord to forgive them uh, for having to uh, uh, throw the prophet Jonah uh, overboard. Some very interesting little insights, you see, because, listen, the point is those, those mariners, those sailors, were Phoenicians. They weren't God's children. And the whole book of Jonah is meant to break open wide this conception that only Jews, only, only people within the covenant are good people. See, here you've got um, the reaction of people outside the covenant. They were quite good people, though not the Lord's. But it's a very interesting thing that it says that when the, when the, when the storm calmed down, they made vows to the living God. Um, they made vows to the Lord after that. So it may well be that Jonah, while they were concerned, Jonah was dead it drowned, uh, but it had resulted in their conversion. That's another interesting thing. The book is filled with this insight, uh, with insight into nature, real nature. The way that, for instance, Jonah, and we must be careful here, uh, that we don't copy him in the wrong way and become uh, those who are, had no fear of the Lord. But uh, Jonah's um, conversations with the Lord are very wonderful. Uh, they're so real. They're so genuine. They remind me very much of the Lord's conversations with Moses, his arguments, Moses' arguments with the Lord, and Jeremiah's arguments with the Lord. All these three seem to be somewhat the same. When the Lord says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry uh, over this thing? I do very well to be angry, he said, angry enough to die. And most people I don't think would talk uh, to the Lord like that. It's quite clear that the Lord understood Jonah. There was a relationship between the two, a real friendship. And when the Lord called Abraham, my friend, uh, there was something, you see, of an intimacy here in which both sides understood uh, each other. <clears throat> I, I think we've already noted how carefully the Holy Spirit has led us into this matter of judgment in, these, uh, in the preceding books. Um, Jonah emphasizes one thing which is important for us to see in the question of judgment that God has, if I may use the word, a natural aversion to judgment. 
You see, isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit has led us through Hosea with his tenderness in the whole question of judgment, through to Joel, who was a little more definite and clear, but still with an accent on the grace of God, to Amos, who was stern and clear, almost severe, and then to Obadiah with his getting right down to the root causes of the thing uh, and the methods of judgment and what happens in one and the other, the unsaved and God's own. And now we come to this book of Jonah, which I believe is the last, if I may say so, the last bit of ballast in this whole ship of judge, the whole ship of judgment. Just puts everything on a right keel. Uh, what is it? It is simply that God doesn't like judgment. If there is any possibility, however slender, of averting judgment, of deferring judgment, God will do it. And here there is this wonderful picture of God that although, although Jonah sent with this severe message, the Lord, in fact, wants to um, stand back and with the, with the slightest reaction on the part of the unsaved toward himself, he, in fact, defers judgment for 150 years. A very wonderful fact. Um, Jonah is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. Now, can we say anything about this, the authorship and date? We've spent quite some time this evening on the introduction to this book. What can we say about the authorship and the date of, of Jonah? The book claims to be the experience of the, of the prophet Jonah, who lived in Jeroboam II's reign, which is 782 <coughs> to 753 um, BC approximately, anyway, and he was a native of the northern kingdom, that is, uh, the kingdom of Israel. He lived um, in, right up in the north, near Mount Tabor. Um, he was evidently a native uh, of Israel. All these things we gather from Jonah 1 and verse 1 and 2 Kings uh, 14, verse 23 and verse 25. From that we gather um, that it claims to be the experiences of this <coughs> prophet Jonah, who was the son of Amittai. Controversy has raged over this little book, as I, I, as I suppose we should expect. Uh, perhaps more than many others. Its authorship there's been controversy over its authorship, there's been controversy over its date, there's been controversy over its historicity, there's been controversy over its unity, and so on. The now usual view of Jonah is technically based on so-called linguistic evidence, but is essentially based, and there's a vast difference, is essentially on the problem of the miraculous, entered in the miraculous in the book. Although a lot is made of so-called linguistic um, evidence of a later date. What is the usual view? It is that this book is not historical at all, but is fictitious. It was written in the post-exilic period, that's right, uh, from 536 onwards, um, and that it was written when Jewish exclusivism had reached a new height in the days of Malachi. 
One view uh, held in this way is that the book is a parable, a parable, rather like um, the prodigal son. See? It's a parable, or like the she the shepherd who had the hundred sheep, um, or the good Samaritan. Uh, it's a parable, and it is an imaginative story created, so they say, to teach a lesson. An imaginative story created to teach a lesson. Another variation uh, in this generally held view is that it is an allegory written after the fall of Jerusalem, during the exile, that is in this period, <coughs> and was written to portray... <coughs> The collapse of God's people, the reason for the collapse, and their restoration and mission. In other words, Jonah is a figure for Israel. And all that happened to him, it's just an allegory. It's all in veiled language uh, portraying what has happened to God's people, why it's happened to them, um, how God's going to take them back up again, as it were, out of the depths and how he's going to send them uh, back and give them back their vocation. And evidence for this is found, according to the people who hold this view, in Jeremiah 51, and um, from uh, verse 34 to 46, which speaks of this very thing, you see, about them being swallowed, as it were, by a sea monster. Babylon is looked upon as a They say, here is the evidence for this view. However, there are the following factors that need to be taken into consideration. I've just list, listed down a few that I think will help us a little in understanding the book of Jonah. First of all, Jonah is undoubtedly an historical character who lived in Jeroboam II's reign. Because if you look at 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we find that there is in fact... Uh, uh, a character called Jonah, the son of Mittai, who uh, ministered in the reign uh, of Jeroboam II. Now the whole point is that some say that that Jonah of Mittai, of Gathhepha, was not the Jonah of this book. I think that um, that's a little far-fetched, it's obvious, isn't it? You? That the, this name, Amittai, for instance, only occurs twice in the whole of the Bible. Jonah 1.1 1, 1, and 2 Kings 14 and verse 25. The name Jonah only occurs twice in the whole Bible, uh, again, in, in those two places. It is the most obvious thing that these two men are the same. Furthermore, there's a lot of other evidence to tie, tie them up. Um, there we are. It seems quite clear that Jonah is a historical Secondly, the atmosphere of the, of the book is one of biographical narrative. There is nowhere in the whole 48 verses any impression given of it being fictitious. You don't get any sense anywhere of the thing being a parable or, or uh, an allegory. That's another thing. A third thing is that neither Jewish nor Christian scholars have ever thought of it as anything but historical narrative until quite recently. The fourth thing is, it is the miraculous element, more than anything else, which creates the problem for many. The fifth thing is, there is not a proved Persian or Greek word in the 48 verses, and the Aramaisms that are supposed to be evidence of it belonging to a very late date uh, do in fact occur in earlier books. 
So there does not seem to be any of this linguistic evidence, at least in the, uh, in the eyes of many scholars. Uh, there, there it is, there's not. Then, sixthly, the Lord Jesus, and this is most important, it is quite evident from his words in Matthew 12, 40 and 41, believed that Jonah was an historic character who was swallowed by a sea monster who was vomited up again and who performed the ministry. That is most important. People try to get over this by all kinds of arguments, but it is clear that the Lord Jesus did believe that Jonah was in fact a, a, a historic figure. The simple way to test that is to go straight on to verse 43 of that Matthew chapter 12. And what does the Lord go on? He speaks of the Queen of the South coming in the days of Solomon. He says, Behold, greater than Solomon is here. All of us, it's quite obvious, all of us know um, that Solomon as a historic figure is proved and the Queen of Sheba as a historic figure is proved. Um, we are asked to believe that in the first the Lord was speaking of an allegory and knew it was so, and in the second uh, he was speaking of actual historic figures. It's quite clear the Lord Jesus believed that Jonah was an historic figure. And seventhly, when this is most important, Jonah was a sign, according to the Lord Jesus. That is more than a miracle. A miracle is just something uh, supernatural happening. If I had uh, tuberculosis and was just healed, just like that, it could be just a miracle. One moment I was dying, the next moment I was healed. It was a miracle. Something supernatural happened. In answer to faith in the Lord, something supernatural. It may not be a sign. It may only be a miracle. But a sign is when the miracle is intended to um, express very great lessons. So... The Gospel of John is built not on miracles, but signs. The man born blind is a sign. The feeding of the five thousand he calls a sign. The calming of the storm and the sea is a sign. And so he goes on. There is a difference, you see, between a miracle um, and a sign. Uh, the sign is something which is a parable. Um, many of the healings that the Lord Jesus um, uh, effected were miracles. In a sense, they revealed his power and his authority. They were evidence for his um, presence, the presence of God. But they were miracles. But there were many that were more than miracles. They were signs. And they have come down to us now as something from which we can draw tremendous lessons. I wonder if you get the difference there. So you see, when people have got hold of the point that there somehow seems to be a parable in the life of Jonah, they're not speaking untruth. They have, in fact, got hold of something. We would say uh, that the parable comes out of historic fact, that, in fact, Jonah was an actual person who lived in the reign of Jeroboam II, who did flee from God uh, in disobedience, who was swallowed by some sea monster, and after three <coughs> days was vomited up onto dry ground, and that he was then recommissioned and went back to Nineveh, proclaimed his message, and that Nineveh repented. And then there was a further experience of the, of, the, of the law that Jonah had. We would say all that is in fact historic, but beyond the historic, it is a sign. 
The whole thing is a parable. The whole thing is a parable. So we accept the historicity of Jonah. We must just point out, though, that nowhere does the book of Jonah claim to have been written by Jonah. Um, it is not necessary. It is not necessary to believe that Jonah actually wrote this book. The way the book of Jonah begins is in fact different to the way some of the other small minor prophets begin. And it may well be that this little book was written by Jonah. It may be the account that came from his hand, or it may be, and I think myself, I somehow feel more toward this, that this little book was um, written based on the account of Jonah as he gave it and the account of the mariners. There are some other interesting points. You see that when Jonah was in the belly, he didn't know what was going on. But it's got to He may, of course, found out. We don't know. But uh, uh, it, may, it may be that he, in fact, wrote this, uh, or it might be that someone else did. What we can say is that it was written, um, it was based, at any rate, on a... Jonah's own personal account of what happened. Um, I think we could, we could, we've made that as clear as we can. It must have been written before Nineveh's destruction in 612 BC and probably before Israel's fall in 719. Um, it is more than probable that in actual fact the book was written about 740 BC. <coughs> That's probably uh, where, in fact, it was uh, when, in fact, it was committed to writing. <coughs> the literary form of Jonah is biographical narrative, and in style, it's reminiscent of one and two kings, particularly the times of Elijah and Elisha. That's a very interesting game. It all fits in, you see. Well, now, can we just say anything, lastly, this evening, about the background of Jonah? Jonah, strangely enough, means dove. Rather strange, isn't it, when we see some of his reactions. And he was born and brought up, as far as we can see, in gath in Zebulun, or Galilee, New Testament Galilee. He was thus a subject, as we have already pointed out, of the northern kingdom, and he lived in the reign of Jeroboam. To understand his background, we've, we've got to refer back to the background of Hosea and Amos. If those of you who were here remember something of the background of both those prophets, you've got already the background of Jonah. Um, it was a time of very great opulence, very great luxury, you remember. Assyria had withdrawn a little, and consequently all these nations, uh, the Palestinian nations and so on, were given their freedom, and both Israel and Judah had phase, uh, phases of unparalleled prosperity since the days of Solomon. Um, that's as much as we need to say. There's much else that came with it. There are some very interesting Jewish traditions about Jonah, of course, there are lots of Jewish traditions about all the prophets, but there are three very interesting Jewish traditions about Jonah for which we have no um, substantial evidence. We can only just mention them. One is, Jewish tradition says that Jonah was the, the little boy, the widow's son, who was raised to life by Elijah. Remember the widow of Zarephath? Well, they say the little boy that Elijah raised to life was, in fact, Jonah. Secondly, they say the serpent who was on the top of Mount Carmel and went and looked, you know, six times to see whether there was any cloud. The seventh time he saw one, remember? 
um, and who fled with him from the face of Jezebel, the boy, the boy serpent, who fled with him, was again Jonah. And the third tradition is that the young man, the young man who had become a prophet, who was called the prophet, uh, who was sent by Elisha to anoint Jehu, was Jonah. Well, whether we can give credence to those, those are uh, some traditions about Jonah. One thing we can say is that Jonah succeeded Elisha in prophetic ministry uh, in Israel. He ministered devotedly, as far as we can see, until God told him to go to Nineveh. And then all his devotion collapsed. And he fled from the presence of the Lord. How poor Jonah did that, but all of us are the same. The very things we believe most, you suddenly contradict in a moment. How did Jonah, who must have talked about the presence of God, God Almighty, the God of the heavens and the earth, how could he think he could flee from the presence of the Lord by taking a boat, a boat to Tarshish? Isn't it amazing? But you see, suddenly, the, it, just, it just reveals, does it not, that what is of God in us is, is indeed of God. What, what anything that, that is going to go through is really of God. That when suddenly we collapse, we just, it suddenly just becomes apparent what we really are. We go right back, and all of a sudden we become ignorant, silly people who contradict all that we really believe and have taught and everything else. Anyway, he fled. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? At this point about Nineveh, this ministry to the Gentiles got right to the root of poor Job. He was quite content and prepared to suffer in a gainsaying, contradicting people of God. But he could not bear the thought of going to the unsaved. Oh, that was just too much for Jonah, and he fled. He took a ticket, it says expressly. He bought a ticket by boat to Tarshish. Tarshish means smelters, and it was a name that was given to all the Phoenician all the little Phoenician settlements around the Mediterranean, we believe now, uh, went by this name of Tarshish. Um, they, were all, they were in charge of the metal trade. <coughs> and ships of Tarshish, it is now believed, uh, were in fact um, a technical name for a kind of metal cargo-carrying ship. Uh, we know, for instance, that there was um, a Tarshish in Spain. It is believed that there was another Tarshish in Sardinia. It was believed that there was another Tarshish in Cilicia, you see. Um, it was all, all these settlements that grew up um, around the Phoenician metal trade. So we do not, in fact, know whether um, when Jonah bought this ticket, he was going to Spain, Sardinia, or Cilicia, or somewhere else. But what we can be certain of was that he was getting as far away from the Lord as he possibly could. Um, it is often pointed out by the old divines that he was trying to get to Tartessus in Spain because they felt that was the farthest point that he could possibly get away. It was the end of his world, you see. The inhabited world ended with Spain uh, in Old Testament days and he was just going to get away as far as he possibly could. Well, we don't know. It may, there may be truth in that. The point was that whether he was going to try and get to Spain, Sardinia, Cilicia or where, God sovereignly, sovereignly intervened before the ship had hardly got out of the sight of land. And uh, that's where the story that we have begins, just at that point. 
That's the background. And what kind of man was Jonah? Uh, he's often treated condescendingly, I feel, by Christian people who forget, now this is a point, who forget that it was his candor and openness and humility which has allowed the story as we have it to have come to us. You must remember that for the most part, this story was locked up in Jonah's heart. If he had never opened his lips, we would never have had it. We would have had a very, very unbalanced, one-sided story. So before you, before you start to judge Jonah, and I've often heard people judge Jonah as this little, petty, mean, selfish man, you know, and so on. Before we start to judge him, do remember that in fact there were some, there were some characteristics of greatness in the prophet Jonah. It takes a very great man indeed to open his heart like this, you know, and, and to say things about, the, to tell us what he said to the Lord. <laughs> it takes a big man to do that. Uh, you know, just to put, as we say, all the cards on the table uh, and say, I mean, after all, Jonah must have known, surely, if I know anything about the way the devil tempts us and treats us, he must have known that for, forever after he was going to be treated with scorn. He wrecked his reputation the day, you know, he, he put this down into black and white. He wrecked it, absolutely wrecked it. From then on, everyone was always going to talk about petty Jonah. Little, narrow, prejudiced Jonah. But he was so great, God did something so real in him that he was prepared to be known as petty if it could only expose the pettiness in God's people. If it could only give the Lord his right he was perfectly prepared for his name to be bandied about by uh, God's people, as indeed it, 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 it has been. He has that character of utter frankness, which whilst it's endearing, is also most alarming. Um, he has that openness of spirit, which always says what it feels. Not maliciously, but not always graciously. You've got this in the prophet Jonah, even his reaction to the Lord. You know, his reactions to the Lord are not gracious. Uh, the way he stomps out, you see, with a thick black cloud over him, stomps out and builds a little booth in fury and sits there, just to see whether the Lord's going to change his mind. He was going to sit it out 40 days and 40 nights, you know, out there, uh, just to see whether, in fact, by sulking out there on there, he could change the mind of the Lord. It shows the relationship between Jonah and the Lord was very intimate and real. But you see, here you've got a man that says what he feels. When the Lord says, Jonah, well, aren't you, haven't you got any, uh, well, uh, do you do well to be angry for this God? He says, I do do well, angry like I'm angry enough to, angry enough to die. That's the frankness. He's the kind of man who speaks his feelings and who's very open. He's like Peter, Jonah. Uh, he, he's evidently a quick man. He's an impulsive man. The way he goes down and buys that ticket there and then, he obviously is very tired. For, from what we can gather, he must have walked all day and all night from Galilee to get down there as quickly as he could. Went down to Joppa, got into that boat and fell into a deep sleep that even a terrible storm and everyone crying to their idols to save them didn't wake him up. So you can see the kind of impulsive man he was, strong-willed, with strong convictions, 
Um, I, I can't stick this anymore. I'm going. And he was down there as quickly as he possibly was into that ship. And he was, he thought he was well on the way. When he, I suppose when he thought, when I wake up, I shall be well on the way. Right out of the way of the Lord. Another interesting thing is that he comes out as a man of strong convictions as well. A prophet Jonah. You see, it, this isn't a, so much a petty man. It's a man that is the product of theological conceptions which are wrong. That's all. You see, he's got strong convictions. But where are his strong convictions? They're based on theological conceptions. He, he's rather like a, if I may, without causing a terrible rumbles, he's rather like an ultra-Calvinist, a hyper-Calvinist, you see, who, who is a good man, a godly man, a, a man who loves God and is devoted to God, but whose theological conceptions <coughs> have given rise to certain strong convictions. Can't tell Sunday school. <laughs> Mustn't have an evangelistic meeting. Doesn't use evangelistic meetings. Gracious. The Lord can save anyone, he will save them. Don't have an open air meeting? The work of the devil. Honor to the name of God. Have an open air meeting. God is so sovereign that if you want to save anything. The man is the is the product of theological conceptions. He's got strong convictions, you see. He's a loyal man. Loyal to traditions. Loyal to what he believes is right. Loyal to his conceptions of God. You see, poor Jonah. When he saw the Lord acting like he did, well, uh, all his conceptions of God went, just went. It was a new God that was coming into view. Well, those are things I think we ought to say. Throughout this little book, in all his relationships, he's revealed as a very candid and genuine and sincere man. And in some ways, I might say, in spite of what people say about his pettiness, he's revealed as a magnanimous man. Do you know there was nothing more wonderful, nothing greater, than when he said to those sailors, when they came to him and said, who are you? Where do you come from? Uh, because he told them he was running away from the Lord. He, he's, he's such an open man, so sincere, he just says what he did. He told them, I'm running away from the Lord. So when the storm came up, the first thing they did was, they thought, oh, lots. They cast the lots that fell on Jonah. They, said, they remembered, it says in the word, that he said he was running away from the Lord. That's the kind of open man he was, you see. Then you see that uh, the magnanimous way in which he said, look, throw me overboard. <laughs> throw me overboard and you'll all be all right. But quite frankly, most of us, if we'd taken a course like that, I can't see us saying to everyone, as they're all praying, and they found out it was us saying, throw us out. <laughs> throw us out, you'll all be all right. I'm the trouble. The thing's thinking because of me. You throw me out. That was magnanimous. And so don't forget when you talk about Jonah being a, a petty man and small, that he's not really so petty and small. It took, it took a greatness of character and heart to say to them. And you know, those men uh, must have, I say this with thought, those men must have noted sterling qualities in Jonah. I'm sure that if he was a little, mean, petty, type of man, they wouldn't have had much compunction about throwing him over, and not those tough men. Much compunction. But there must have been sterling qualities in Jonah which they admired and respected. And it's rather interesting, they also laboured to help him get away from the Lord. It says they rode very hard to sort of keep him alive, knowing that the Lord wasn't going to have it. Uh, it says the more they rode, I think it's Dean Stanley says, the more they rode, they ploughed up the waves over them. They dug them up until at last the only course was to throw Jonah over. And so they get on their knees and they ask the Lord to forgive them for doing it. 
and then they throw Jonah over the water. And as soon as they do that, it's the end of the storm. The thing becomes calm and they're converted. The tree reveals a kind of man, the kind of man that Jonah was. If he had anything to do with the composition of this book, and I say this against my own feeling, if he had anything to do with the composition of this book, or even if someone near to him wrote it on his account, it took a man who was very humble to let it remain where it ended. I know what I would have done. I would have said, now, here, if you're going to write this up, do put at the end, won't you, that Jonah was changed and Jonah spent the rest of his days ministering to the Assyrians in Nineveh or something like that. No, the book ends on, for Jonah, a sour note. Should not I have pity on Nineveh? For Jonah, it was a, it, there must have been real humility if this book was, was put into its form in his lifetime, as we believe it may have been. Uh, for it to have been left like that. There we are. Well, if we are to understand anything about Jonah, we've got to understand about Nineveh. It was um, the greatest metropolis of the Gentile world, Gentile world up to that time. Babylon was, of course, to succeed it. But in magnificence and wickedness, it was famed everywhere. It was the glory of Assyria. And even the excavations have revealed that Nineveh was no mean city. It was a tremendous place. Um, Jonah's description of the size is not incorrect. Three days' journey, he says. Three days' journey. Um, for he probably spoke of greater Nineveh, not the actual city, but greater Nineveh. Nineveh had this remarkable thing, as indeed Babylon was the same, that the actual city, which excavations have shown, had an inner wall of eight miles uh, circumference, was um, surrounded by quite large suburbs that stretched like farmlands with uh, heavily populated villages and towns right their way out. And the whole thing was known as Nineveh. Um, I don't think we can say anything more about that. Of course, it was an entirely different kind of place than, than the Palestinian cities. Palestinian cities like Jerusalem were all crowded together, compact and small, whereas the Syrian and Babylonian cities were park, plenty of parks and gardens and spacious avenues uh, and everything else. It's a very, very great city indeed. It's a, it, a, a most interesting point is that Nineveh worshipped the fish god, amongst other gods. The fish god, Dagon, was worshipped. And all some scholars believe that the meaning of Nineveh is a fish dwelling. But whatever, uh, that it is a most interesting point that, uh, that Jonah had been prepared for his ministry, because there's no doubt it says the Lord Jesus, he was assigned to the Ninevites. He was assigned to the Ninevites. The, the fame of what had happened to him travels before him to Nineveh. It may account for the way he was listened to as if the very words of God himself uh, had come to them, as indeed they had. But they treated Jonah as if he was God. And the whole city, great Nineveh, went down on its knees before God. They, they went a hundred percent out in repentance. They even caused the, the creatures themselves to wear sackcloth and wouldn't let them eat or drink uh, for those 40 days. And for it's an unbelievable scene, isn't it? For so proud and great a city. No, you see, the Lord had prepared Jonah. This, this experience with this fish, this great sea monster, had prepared Jonah for his ministry. 
to Nineveh. A most interesting factor, I think, that. And we must remember that Jonah was not just being, and I will close now, Jonah was not just being cruel and selfish uh, in his attitude to Nineveh. He wasn't just being cruel and selfish. You see, the Assyrians were famous for their hardness. And they were famous for the way they loved cruelty. The pictures, you can go to the British Museum, I understand, and see even their reliefs of this very They enjoyed cruelty. Of all the ancient uh, races, peoples, they were known for their glory in cruelty. And this was a thing that all the surrounding nations knew and hated them for, hated them bitterly uh, for their wickedness and their cruelty and their arrogance. You see, they happened also to be the arch enemies of Israel. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Jonah in his heart, he seems to be intuitive, whether he hadn't felt that these people were going to be used in the end to do something terrible to God's people. In fact, they were in 719. So you see, it wasn't just a cruel and selfish attitude that, that Jonah had. It was, it was all this that made Jonah so rebellious. His feeling was he, he somehow knew that God would forgive them if they showed the slightest sign of repentance. He somehow knew in his heart. He hadn't got any ground for it except what he knew of God. Somehow he felt the Lord's... <coughs> If, if, they, if they just get on their knees, the Lord will forgive them. So, you see, when the Lord said to him, Jonah, go to Nineveh, he fled. Why did he flee? Because he was frightened of the city. I don't think that was the main reason. It may have been one of the reasons. It's not the main reason. I believe it was because he somehow knew in his heart that, oh, no, no. I'm not, I'm not going to go to those people. If I go there, well, I don't want to see them forgiven. There was this terrible contention with the Lord. You see, Jonah considered God to be over-merciful and excessively gracious in his attitude to uh, Nineveh, to the unsaved, especially where he felt justice now required judgment. I'm quite sure that, uh, that um, Jonah's attitude was Assyria's time should come. She's been, she's been very cruel. Justice requires judgment. But in his heart, he knew that somehow or other, God might well forgive them. And that was his contention. Not only, if unconsciously, did he want to govern God, but he seemed to be entirely unaware of the way God had shown grace and love toward him. And if that wasn't enough, he seemed to be unaware of the way God had forborne with his gainsaying people for hundreds of years. It was a blind spot in Jonah, which, thank God, the Lord removed in the end, I believe. It doesn't say so in the book, but I, I, I believe that the fact that it's been written is a sign that Jonah came right through to a new place. He saw, he had a very big battle with the Lord, and perhaps some of us don't quite understand it. I don't know whether that's Though that is true, when we are in this world and we're part of this world, you know, there are times when we see something we don't like in this world where we, we don't want to be used to help them to the Lord. I couldn't get up with so-and-so and they thought of them coming to the Lord just frightens me. 
you know, that's the spirit that all of us know something about, surely, if, we, if we've been up against people in the world or if they've really ill-treated us. This was the thing that the Lord had to do with, with Job. Well, I will leave it there. I hope that we've got something anyway. It's been rather long. Lord Jesus, we do lift up our hearts to thee and we do pray that in all this, the, all these facts and information we may, Lord, discover thee. <coughs> Dear Lord, our attitude is not always right toward this world. There's a lot that's aloof in us, Lord, a lot that's indifferent in us. There's a lot, Lord, that somehow rebels about being in any way put out for this world, about going out to them. Lord, we do pray that thou use this little book to really put thy finger upon all our hearts and lives, that we may be brought into thy compassion, Lord. We may be just brought into thy concern and sympathy. Do hear us, Lord. Oh, we, we understand a little of this prophet Jonah. He, to us, although, dear Lord, there's so much that perhaps is not right, Lord, there's something that we feel a kinship to. We see ourselves in him. And, Lord, we do pray that, like him, we may be also led through into an understanding of thyself and a fellowship with thyself in all about seeking to do. Lord, bring us into an experience of thy love, not only for ourselves, but a love through us for others. How we need it. Lord, we commit this to thee and pray that Jonah being a sign, we may learn the meaning of his life and experience. We ask it in thy name.